Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you today by the Western Growers Association, supporting growers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com. Now here's your Voices of the Valley host, Director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, Dennis Donahue. This is Dennis Donahue, and welcome back to another episode of Voices of the Valley. I run the Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Salinas. And once again, I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Candace Wilson. Candace? Hi, Dennis. How are you? Good. And I'm excited about, well, I'm excited about all our guests, but I really am particularly excited and intrigued by uh, the young lady who's going to uh, join us today, Mariana Vasconcelos. I, th- close to, did I get close? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And uh, who is the CEO and uh, of AgriSmart? And uh, she's out of Brazil and fascinating background, interesting company, but I was really intrigued. It was nice to see you in person after a couple of years. And, you know, I'd kind of like to start with, we always like our guests to start with, tell us about yourself, what you're doing. And then I kind of want to pick up from you're starting to get on the road after a couple of years. And yeah. uh, so, and I was very happy for you as I'm sure, and, and I couldn't be as happy as you, but even in these last couple of years in the pandemic, you know, the growth of your company. So uh, you're pretty smart. You've got this thing figured out. And uh, what's it like to be on the road after a couple of years? Like you said, well, I just went back to the farm. And, uh, so welcome and tell us about yourself and what's going on. Thank you. So, well, I'm Mariana. I'm Brazilian, like Danny said. I am also from a farming family there, but I founded AgriSmart, which is an ag tech. We are like a platform to support decision-making across the whole supply chain in agriculture. We today work with over 100,000 farmers across Latin America with day-to-day tools, especially around climate, on helping them to become more climate resilient, sustainable, and productive. We also work with corporations within the supply chain regarding their traceability and ESG KPIs. And very excited for next steps. So like Danny said, I went back living in the farm during the pandemic. I was like, we tried to get away from the whole thing. So it was great to be able to reconnect. Like since I was a teenager, I didn't stay in the farm that long. So it was cool to go back. But I missed my routine. Like we had operations across the thumb. Like we have teams in Argentina and Paraguay. I also participated very intensely here on the ecosystem in Silicon Valley and Salinas. So I was missing going out. As soon as I could travel, we went to Argentina because we made an acquisition of an Argentinian company and it was all completed online. So we were struggling to absorb and make the integration and so on. So I started going to Argentina. I also was able to go in the end of last year to the COP26 in Glasgow where I finally got COVID. I was quite quite safe in the farm. (laughs) And then uh, also did a roadshow throughout Europe, like to reconnect with some ecosystem players. And then almost two years later, I'm back in the US. What was involved in keeping the company growing, you know, during the pandemic? I mean, this is a little tongue in cheek, but I mean, how do you zoom your way to the kind of growth you had? We grew 90% in 2020 and 170% in 2021. We, of course, when the pandemic just started, we had to rethink our operations and like a lot of visits were canceled. We couldn't go to the farms. We had to put our teams remotely, even though we have hardware and some people that had to really work in person. So we figured it out. Luckily, like our whole software and tech team were already used it to doing home office, the management team. It was okay. So once we were able to just change the process 
to make it work. People responded very well. We kept the office operating just for the logistics and supply part while everyone else went home and continued online. I think the main struggle was around culture. Like how do you keep people engaged and motivated? So we tried to bring some of our rituals online, like playing games together, making online happy hours and stuff. But I am glad that now we are able to go to hybrid things. So we have more flexibility. Some people move to another cities and they are able to work online. But we started little by little coming back to the office and to the team in-person interactions. That online happy hour, that what we, what we... <laughs> Our residents are from all over the planet. We may have to come uh, get some tips from you on that one. Candace? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really great idea, actually, yeah, Dennis. It is. I would just like to know, can you walk our listeners through who specifically your customers are, how you show up on the farm, and then kind of, you know, the process through commercializing and take us through that journey of how you serve growers? So the first thing that we have is a free app that's called Booster Agro. So any farmer can just download it. They will have like a weather comparison where you can see different providers, you can register uh, their land. And based on that community of over 100,000 farmers, we exchange a lot of benchmarks. So we constantly make them questions so we can gather everyone learnings and share with anyone else so we can help them to improve. So that's mostly just online. Like people just arrive to us. We are quite known already in Latin America. We have farmers that goes from like, half an acre to a 1,000 acres, 10,000 acres, like Latin America has very big professional farms as well as a lot of family farms. So we are in all this spectrum. We work with over 90 crops. So from vegetables to soybean and coffee and sugar cane, like all around. Then it's our paid climate smart agriculture platform, which includes sensors, algorithms that are more advanced on decision making. And that sense, farmers usually come to us through the content that we produce and through our ad campaigns that are mostly in social media and Google ads, then our sales team uh, talk to them to understand what's their problem. Like we really like to understand what is the pain and then we will help them find the best technology to solve that pain, right? Once it's there, then we return investment and we can help them to go adopting technology little by little until they have the majority of the operation digitally. So that's how we, we serve the farmers. On the other side, we also support farmers within a supply chain. Then we arrive like to Nestle or to AB and Bav, and then through them, we get to their providers so we can help them on climate resilience issues and on traceability of ESG KPIs. And when farmers are bringing you issues, do you have like a set group of technology providers that you partner with or how are you surveying the landscape to make sure you're bringing the right pieces together? Yes, we have several partnerships worldwide. Some of the things we have on our own development, other things I would just recommend them to someone else. With some of the companies, we are API integrated. So they are able to use other system and have the data inside our platform or exchange it to make a better use of the technology. With others, it's just like, okay, we are not a partner, but we know you need these and maybe you can find this solution in this and this company. So we have like a portfolio of Solutions that we know very well across the markets, I would say. Ag tech is a small world. So globally, in general, we all know each other. That's true. I've learned this over the years that it's so connected globally. And really, everybody does kind of depend on each other to navigate this space. It's still very much coming together. Yeah. So with that in mind, I'd like to pick up on a little bit on what we were chatting about yesterday. Talk about the Latin American scene and how active it is. and Because I think there's just a lot of young, terrific talent down there. And I'm not sure... As we were chatting yesterday, and you know, Candace knows this from her business background, you know, everyone kind of knows about the Dutch or the Israelis or New Zealand. There's not as much 
awareness of the Latin American scene. And it's pretty active and pretty impressive, isn't it? Yes, and it's growing a lot. So Latin America have always been a strong player on food production. If you look into Brazil, for example, we are the largest producer and exporters of the world into coffee, orange juice, sugar cane, complex uh, of soybean and meat both from cattle and, and chicken. Argentina is also huge on, on grains and, like, and wheat. When you go to Peru, you have berries and uh, avocado, asparagus. Or you go to Chile, you also have berries and grapes. So the ecosystem has been very strongly growing. That the nations realize that there's more that can be done to just export and to just like have commodities that we can capture value once you have technology. So crops that have data, they are worth more because they can tell a story because they can be more compliant and find out new opportunities. So a few years ago, we started like seven years ago, and that was still starting the ecosystem. There is some hubs of technology. So Brazil is certainly one of the largest ones uh, where there's strong venture capital scene, like as the venture is the largest ag tech fund in Latam and one of the largest in the world. There's three main cities in Cuiabá, Londrina and Piracicaba that has ecosystem hubs where they have either a cooperative or a corporation with the agriculture, creating startup hubs, uh, approaching the farmers to the technology. And we have seen a lot of the technology from there growing outside and exporting. Argentina also started something very wrong, very strong. They even have an act that week where people from the whole world in 2019, we received people from New Zealand, from the US, like from Israel, all visiting the country and visiting different startup offices and all coming together in demo farms until the main firm that's happening right now that's called Expo Agro, the main fair trade. So now Mexico is catching up, right? So Mexico has also a lot of strong on produce and avocado. And there is a particular move into taxing in there that happened to Brazil like five years ago. So a lot of non-ag related startups moving out, which also stimulates local entrepreneurs to become ag tech entrepreneurs, which I think it's very important. Like I'm daughter of farmers. I come from this field and actually I didn't want to do it in the past I thought it was so boring it was like nothing to do with what I wanted to do our parents our pushed out like go do something else like you will do better in life it's too hard it's too much work it's too much risk right and we I saw in technology this opportunity of bridging like what I wanted to do and what I think is the future with my roots so I see ag tech as a powerful solution for succession in agriculture, which has been a big challenge. So I think now Latin America has reached a global competitiveness reach and more and more companies are coming to the U.S. and coming to Europe. And I was really intrigued by your comments and insights, uh, and they just make enormous sense. You know, you and I were chatting about that, you know, from a Western grower standpoint, because, you know, Candace and I, you know, we always like to lean in what's good for Western growers, what should they be thinking about? And so many of our major producers, whether they're vegetables or tree fruit, uh, you know, maybe less so nuts and that, that sort of thing. But, you know, they are as part of their year round program so they can be in the marketplace on a year round basis. They do have deals in Mexico or Colombia or Peru, Chile, Argentina. And so once you start integrating technology into your operation, you've got to be seamless, yet you also have to localize your presence. And so I'm really interested in a lot of the companies as they do, as you're doing, like, okay, we're going to head north now into North America, but it may be a little easier for that to happen than necessarily, you know, our company's heading south, you know, in terms of localizing their presence and operationally. So we really do need to be looking very closely at the Latin American scene if we're going to try and bring technology into our operations. I mean, I, I just thought that was a really interesting insight on your part. Yes, totally. And that's one of the reasons why we are chosen globally as a provider, because they know we can support them everywhere. So Latin America has some challenges around, of course, political and economical 
sustainability, around infrastructure and connectivity in Brazil, for example, still today only 23% of the farms have internet, and that's a reality all over the region. Education levels, like on how to communicate with different field workers to the main, like in, you will find professional PhDs, like you know, so many different stakeholders and all of them kind of starting a digital inclusion process and also learning on consumer demand, sustainability and so on and financing that makes our technology players, they have to be more diverse. They have to enter several countries at the same time. And in those realities, you will see a variety of crops and you will see a variety of microclimates, which allow them to perform better generically, which makes it easier to go north than when you are so used to a well-established infrastructure and temperate climate. When you go down and you have diversity, you have to adapt the algorithms. You have to learn that sometimes your sensor might not work and how you will interact with other language speaking farms. So we see that movement that reportedly uh, a lot of Brazilian companies or Argentinian companies that are moving north, including us, find it easier to provide like customer succession here, performing well with the algorithms because we were already prepared to work on different scenarios. You're talking about algorithms. You talked about the bridge of your roots to the things that were really interesting to you. And you're in Menlo Park, right? Menlo Park? Yeah. Okay. So something that we also talk about a lot around Western growers is what the future talent needs to be. And so in this space where there's so many different companies and ag tech startups coming together, how difficult is it to be recruiting talent and how do you, how do you stay competitive and make sure that, you know, you've got the best people prioritized for your business? Yeah, that's a big challenge worldwide. I think the world lacks technology labor. That's like a reality. So we're all killing ourselves for the best developers and the best creators and innovators. Particularly, it is a challenge because agronomy schools are not so digital and we need to create a mindset that is digital first so we can actually improve user experience and the way how we approach problems. And that's a shift. So we end up having to form our own labor force. So we usually recruit very early, like in internship levels, and then we kind of educate it. So the ideal profile should be someone that can learn very quickly, like that can pick up things all the time. And that has the diversity of perspective that can look into agrometeorology, technology, business at the same time. So we need like to bring things together to innovate. And that's a huge challenge because what happens is like then startups create the labor force that corporations take, right? As it's still like, it's hard for startups to compete in terms of salaries and like hopefully with more investments in this industry, which is still little compared to other sectors in the technology space, we will be able to retain more talent. The other question that I had just noted when you were talking about all the regions and countries that you're working in, I'm just curious, as you think about expansion plans for your business and what this business will look like, what, what's the vision in five years? Where would you like to see yourself? We want to be like the largest ag data network in emerging countries. We see our presence in the US and Europe more related to the food companies. So they are closer to the local, like to the global offices and their strategies on choosing platforms that will support their global operations of supply chain. But we focus mostly on emerging countries market. That being said, it's like we want to work with food companies here in California that are producing here and in Mexico and in Colombia because we can provide them everywhere else easily than any other region. So besides LATAM, we're going to move with farmers in Asia and Africa. Those are logical regions for us because they share the challenge on infrastructure, connections and so on. So decision makers in more developed countries and connecting them with the global food production and farmers in emerging regions. So with that in mind, you know, because one of the very simplistic questions I have is, 
you know, a lot of times kind of the mindset is, okay, what's the product as opposed to, well, the product's a platform, which is bigger than. So when you think about, okay, we want to engage on a platform basis and you've, you know, you've kind of laid out the types of companies you're interested in, who are you talking to, to have that conversation? You know, as you know, we all know ag tech's kind of this catch-all and it really has a lot of different buckets. And likewise, I think back to the beginning of ag tech and, you know, everyone would run around and go, well, I want to meet a grower. And so growers kind of became just as generic as ag tech. And after a while, you're kind of, well, you really may not want to meet the grower. You might want to meet the plant manager. You might want to meet the IT person, but growers just kind of the accepted language of, I got to meet growers. Who do you got to meet? You know, who's going to call the shot here in terms of like, we really want to talk and engage and explore what AgriSmart has to offer. On the grower side, it usually starts on the department that will handle the first product they use within the platform. So let's say if I would start with irrigation, they will start using one feature within the platform and then grow to the other features. When I talk to food companies, which usually they have a consumer brand, I usually talk to the management team. So like C-level structure, because it's more like a strategic decision. It's like adopting an end-to-end technology package from the growers to the supply chain, sustainability, value shared departments. So then that's more overall of the company and linked to several strategy points. So when it's a food, uh, we focus on the management. When it's a grower, we learned that sometimes we want to change faster than it's possible. It's picking both as technology and as a farmer, right? Because on my side as a farmer too, it's like, I want to have everything. It, it seems great. Why don't we do it all? And usually the capacity to change is very limited. So a person can barely do three things very well. So what we try to do then in terms of the platform is start with one thing, right? I know you want it all, but just let's pick one thing. Let's implement it. Let's change the behavior. Let's have ROI. Then you adopt the next thing and then the next thing. So you are a fully user of the platform resources. Because if we just start like with 20 resources on the platform, people get lost. And then they end up not doing anything very well and don't have the ROI that is expected. Well, the fact you've had the kind of growth you've had on a percentage basis the last couple of years uh, means that you and your group have, you know, kind of figured it out or are making some progress. And specifically, it's in that same vein of you've had so much growth and you are figuring things out and being successful. Who do you view as your main competitors? I was talking to Denise about that yesterday. Of course, you can consider competitors that are feature-based, like I said. So if you look into irrigation, you can see Arable, you can see Cropax which they don't operate heavily into Latin America. So there is also local players that do consulting and so on. If you look to weather, you can consider weather underground or YR like, or several other local weather providers. So each of the products, we have any specific product differentiation from the ones that we chose to operate. But what I consider a competitor would be actually the companies that have the vision to be the ecosystem of sustainable food production. And we see that this goes through having a hub of different solutions and building finance as a key element to get things going and through consolidation. So I was telling them is we, of course, are watching the movement in North America of like Telos that in Canada that made several acquisitions throughout Canada in the US. Cropax have done some acquisitions as well. Semios in Canada started impest and managing disease and then expanded. So those are the plays that we are looking at that we see that they understand what needs to be done, which is like, I don't believe in standalone features for ag tech because I think agriculture is an ecosystem and problems are not solved individually. You usually need to connect the dots to actually have a systemic change. So those are the places that I'm looking. There's also a very interesting company in New York called Grow Intelligence. They are generating very relevant climate resilience insights on the supply chain side, not on the grower side. So we see like connecting those dots are very valuable. Farmer Business Network is someone that was really able to leverage benchmarks 
among farmers and creating a network. We are not in the input distribution thing, but we do see that's a good example on how we can leverage benchmarks across the farmers. Like that's how we started doing. We recently launched a report on yield and seed varieties, like trying to connect the hybrids used and which ones perform the most so the farmers can make better choices. So those are the players that we see as potential platforms. Let me uh, kind of pick up on that. I do want to get to some of your extracurricular activities, but you mentioned climate resilience a couple of times in terms of obviously analytical tools to deal with that. I mean, growers all over the world, I think it's a pretty easy leap to sign up for climate change. You know, I think about the Salinas Valley and, you know, X amount of heat vents a year. And now it seems like there's half a dozen to a dozen rather than, you know, a couple of times a year and that sort of thing. But if you're a grower and, you know, with, with the kind of CPG companies you're dealing with and operating all over the world, what should growers be thinking about as it relates to climate changes? Obviously you're interested in your own operation and, and potential impact, but just in terms of kind of what's coming you know, whether it's from the large retailers, from a regulatory standpoint, what should the grower be thinking about when they hear climate change and products? Well, I think there's a, a bunch of items to think of. The first thing is like day to day, the rules just change. So if we were able to do something in a certain way, and it's already validated by research, as the conditions change, sometimes we don't realize, but it starts losing effectiveness. So if you are used to a procedure, like you follow a calendar, you have always done things in a certain way. What we are hearing from farmers is like they are losing yield. They are like getting less efficient or less quality and they don't really know why. And it's because those things are constantly changing. So adapting and being able to keep up, right? Like to keep updating the decisions and the models according to what is actually happening. It's very important, like a ridiculous example, but we had farms to prosecute a seed company over watermelon seeds because they said like this seed doesn't work anymore. And it was actually a pollinization problem. And it was a positive pollinization problem as a result of climate change. So the temperatures were getting lower, slightly lower to a level that they needed to release more bees, but they, they didn't guess it now. Okay, now suddenly this happened and I have to release more bees. So those are small changes in the day to day. The other thing is like extreme weather events. So drought, there is several regions that are completely affected. And like in Brazil, in Espirito Santo is a region that has been struggling for the past three to five years with uh, lack of water. There's floods, there is frost. So a lot of Brazilian production in the last year suffered not only with coffee, but also with grains. So we see like those extreme weather events happen more often. And there's like destructive events. So farmers have to be more aware of risk and insurance and so on. On the regulatory and demand side, consumer behavior is also becoming more strict and, and being aware on their own issues. So trying to make agriculture less impactful on the environment. So a lot of the food companies are increasing their demand on having traceability regarding deforestation, using of inputs, carbon, and so on. So having more and more information, we'll be able to demonstrate the path that you're going and price, right? Because if other regions suffer, then the demand and offer are altered. So your price might be affected. And what happens is like maybe you are in a pool of growers that provides to a specific brand. And we have been seeing corporations change their decision-making on where they source from. Maybe you are doing well, but if all your neighbors are doing bad, then like they won't buy from this region anymore and you will lose your buyer. So those dynamics are changing because some regions that were not adequate for growing grapes or apples or wheat, so they will start sourcing from somewhere else. And it might be cheaper 
in that place as it before it was not common to do it there or more people are willing to enter the business. So it's a business decision, right? The dynamics will change. The map will relocate itself and we have to be alert. The gears I wanted to shift to a little bit is, you know, Candace, I think we can agree. Marianne is pretty well-spoken, pretty you know, darn knowledgeable. I would not like to meet her in an intellectual blind alley. I know who <laughs> would win. You have, I know I'm interrupting you too, but as I'm listening to you talk, you know so much about all of these different intersections and topics and issues that are converging on, on agriculture. My question is just, how are you prioritizing the opportunities that are in front of you and your company? So we have two ways to prioritize. First, we listen, right? We listen to the growers, we listen to the corporates, we listen to government policy and everything else that's happening in the context. And then we have an opportunity maps, which means every business unit we want to enter, like every big thesis, like let's say carbon is a big thesis or climate smart agriculture is a thesis, ESG is a thesis. So we decide what's the size of that opportunity because not necessarily having a problem, we have money, how we can make things to sustain, how big is the market, is this something that can be global or that's just a localized problem. Once we have that, this all go to our product team as like product suggestions. These suggestions I prioritize regarding, will this allow us to have more and more data and information to learn from? Will these bring more and more growers into our platform so we can actually generate systemic change? Will these generate enough impact? Like we are super impact driven. We are certifying as a corporate B. So like we are always looking what product, what is the end result in the line of the impact? And of course, around revenues. So with that, we prioritize and we see complexity. How hard is for us to do it? Like, should we do it? Isn't there someone else better that is already doing, that is already out there? Then you can either partner M&A or like just not enter, right? So that's how we, we have like our own framework that goes in that path. So Candice, these are the answers you would expect from somebody who Bloomberg has acknowledged as one of the most influential players in LATAM, a Forbes under 30 player. And I particularly like this one. And I can tell having met you, you're pretty darn humble and you really do remember your roots of where you came from. But so the MIT Technology Review has you as one of the most brilliant innovators under 35. So with all of that, and that, you know, we can see, you know, she's blushing a little bit and I apologize <laughs> for doing that to you. But what your accomplishments have done, it's, it's allowed you to hang around some pretty interesting forums, whether it's the World Economic Council or Davos and that sort of thing. And I really like your answer of Candace's questions. The first thing we do is listen. So because of your accomplishments, you, you get to hang around some pretty interesting places. So you're listening for your company, but what are you hearing in general, uh, just in terms of, you know, ag tech and uh, where are we heading? You know, when ag tech first started, everything was in 2050, you know, the middle class will quadruple and we got to increase yields. And you don't hear that so much anymore. It may still be true, but where are we heading with all this in your, your mind? We have a great challenge, right? Like until 2030, we need a huge change in food systems. So that's still true. We still need to produce more food. We need to become climate resilient. We need to be more sustainable, but it's hard to grow as ag tech. There are several challenges. Infrastructure and connectivity is one of them. Like a big part of the world does not have internet, so we can't bring digital tools. There's a huge mindset shift. Right, convincing someone, why would you change? Why would you do it differently if right now you make money? If right now it works? And I guess that was like explaining to the big corporates back then how they would be disrupted by the Silicon Valley companies. Like, how, why? Why do you have to do different? Because this model is not sustainable. So we need to make a, a difference, but it's a hard shift on mindset. So adoption is very low. It's hard yet to have people not only buying, but using, because one thing is buying, the other thing is using, and actually make change. 
and financing. So in other parts of the world, I recently learned that here in the US, it seems like there is a lot of financing lines. That's not a reality everywhere. So farmers usually don't have the money to invest in technology, invest in sustainable practices, in regenerative ag, in organic, in certifications, in carbon projects. They literally take loans to buy inputs. So with that, what we see everywhere is that ag techs are in the early adopters yet. It's hard to cross the chasm to hit the massive markets and all of the distribution channels that are dominated in the input side. And even them struggle like putting down their own technologies. That being said, we like what I have been hearing, the World Bank discussions in the IDB is like, everyone understands like we need more money and we need patient money because it is money, not only for a business, it's money for a systemic change. So we need to solve problems around agriculture and on the food production side, it would be a similar comparison to infrastructure and logistics, storage and so on, right? It's not enough to just produce. You have to have the whole supply chain engaged to actually make the change. So that's one of the things that's good and bad. So a lot of normal venture capitalists are not making investments in agriculture. I'm here in Silicon Valley this week having a lot of talks and like, no, ag tech is too hard. Ag tech is not yet a digital, like vertical SaaS as you can find in other SaaS enterprise companies. But there is a huge opportunity on the impact side. So more and more people care what do they do with their capital. And they are willing to allocate that into changing the world. So there is a new generation of funds that are coming with an impact-driven purpose. And it might be a way out for, for ag techs to grow. So in my perspective, like it is going to happen. It's inevitable. It's an exponential curve, even though it looks slow. And that's characteristic of exponential curves. In the beginning, you double, like, but you don't realize because it's too small. But it is going to explode. That will be the future. Like There won't be agriculture that is not digital and sustainable in the future. Uh, but we have to act out to solve the things around it. And that's where we see a lot of ag techs focusing on monetization on the corporate side, not only to the grower because they already know their margins are small. So like, how do we bring more tools to help farmers to learn how to use it without having to monetize there? Embedding finance is a big thing and non-stoppable consolidation movement. So there will be an aggregation of several ag techs. I have a question about this, and this can be a rookie question, but I get it all of the time as well. How are you sharing the value that you create? Well, several ways, I think. So first, we share a lot of things without charging for it on the farmer side, like a lot of insights and benchmarks and education material. We are advocates, right, for climate, for food, and for gender equality. So we not only do a lot of educational work, going to the fields, going to the workshops and fairs and talking about it and helping them to navigate, even if I won't do anything as a business, right? Policymaking, we are super engaged with the governments and ministries of agriculture across Latin American region. I'm currently an advisory board on digital ag at the ICA, the Inter-American Institute for Agriculture based in Costa Rica in helping other entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurship happens through ecosystems. So if I can be of a role model, either for people that didn't start yet, but they see that they can make change or people that are just in the same journey and struggling with the same thing. So I think the whole tech revolution started with giving back. It's like everything that you have, you can talk to everyone and listen and give feedback and grow. So that's why I serve in advisory boards for three NGOs and highly engaged in women in ag tech ecosystems, women in agriculture in general as a farmer as well, because we do need more women taking front of the farming operation, right? Not only being a family member, but actually doing it, taking the lead. And yeah, I think that's the main thing. I love it. Well, you know, I can't help but uh, wonder these forums and your, and I know it's not extracurricular per se, but you know, that seems, it's almost like you have to be there to help 
accelerate that culture shift. You yeah. know, so people understand they've got to look at the game uh, a little differently. Yeah. If we don't create the environment, the, the regulations, the ecosystem, my company cannot exist. So we need to advocate. So we have those places, group people. When we started, no one believed in agtech. I talked to like some multinationals in the input world and they're like, it's not going to happen. And they became a data company and they saw their business. And today it's an important unit. Like all of them have strategies for that. But it has been a journey of like bringing people around. You also asked before, how do we retain talent? And I think that's one thing. It's like purpose, right? Like we believe we can make a change in this space. And many times we find people that maybe they will do more money everywhere else. But here they have a chance of actually being close to making a change. As we kind of finish up, you know, you mentioned uh, the internet and connectivity and, you know, everybody keeps talking about it. I mean, we can kind of roll our eyes with how many times we've heard about it in California in terms of something's going to happen. It's got to happen, but it doesn't happen. And now there's money. It's like, okay, well, now there's money. When's it going to happen? What happens if it actually happens? I mean, <laughs> where, where does that take us, you, you know, that you get connectivity? I mean, it just opens up that whole internet of things. So what does that world begin to look like? It sounds like broadband getting that really done just opens up everything. So what happens and what are the products and where do we head from there if it actually were to get done? I think it always starts like with the democratization, this monetization, this materialization of everything, just as it did in the consumer side, right? Look how many free apps we have in our phone. We almost don't pay for almost anything and we have it everywhere and we can exchange and it can be globally. So we will have a shift on the global scene of agriculture. And I think with more, a lot of the involvement of other stakeholders that are usually very far from the supply chain, but now everyone could be closer. And I agree with you that it's always a promise because it's a problem of business model. It's very expensive to bring the connectivity and no one wants to take on the cost. When you compare the population in rural areas to the city, the telecoms, they don't really know that until they start rolling and promising and then they come as like the math doesn't close and the grower won't pay either because just having internet don't bring that change it's just an enabler so you need that so the other things can appear then more and more entrepreneurs will get into the creation of value on top of it yeah i mean in my mind i always kind of compare it to the 19th century if, if somehow just in our country and I, I assume the same in Brazil, you know somebody had to put up all the telephone poles before the telephone yeah. could actually happen and we exactly. just can't seem to get the poles put up yeah, uh, it's because now the technology shift is so fast that we just keep lo- going from like whatever 4G, LoRa, Sigfox, narrowband IoT, satellite 5G, and it's like, why is there the 5G if we didn't finish putting the thing? So we are constantly changing, and then they go updating the other stuff, and we never finish to get it there. So it's complex. That's why I think, for example, Telco Italia in Brazil is launching a project that I consider very interesting. And they're called Team in there. They made the business model of partnerships. So they go through cooperatives or big like farm associations, and then they make an investment on the network tower, but they can have like a cashback to apply in the application because it's through the applications, through all their ag techs uh, and so on, either the farmer will get ROI. So it makes sense because he makes an investment, but he's able to capture something back and invest. Let's see how it evolves. Candice, what, what do you think? So I told you she'd be terrific and we're pretty darn excited you chose to head to the U.S. after two years of uh, being off to the shelves or, you know, down on the farm. But uh, no, I just find this fascinating. And I think, you know, what you're doing and the impact you're having is, is terrific. So just really a, a pleasure to speak with you. Candice, anything before we uh, let her uh, go pack her bags to go down to Mexico? 
you know, I'm just a loud and proud advocate for women in agriculture. So I just want to say congratulations on all your successes. And it will be so much fun to watch you guys continue to grow. So congratulations and thanks for joining us today. Well, and we're pretty darn excited that she's also a resident of the Innovation Center. So, you know, you're known by the company you keep. And so I think uh, <laughs> hanging out with AgriSmart is a pretty, pretty good deal for us. So we thank you for that. Terrific to... Uh, see you. And the next time you're in town, we're actually going to give you a key to the place so you can get in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah I just no, one, no, of our, I, one of our loyal residents. We appreciate that. I'm the one to thank guys. I really believe on the ecosystem that you guys are building on, on Salinas and Central Valley. So it makes a lot of sense on connecting where the growers are with the technology side. So we are happy to be one of the companies investing in the region and hope to be there more often with bigger teams. Well, we're going to roll up our sleeves and help you as much as we can. Thanks very much for your time. It was a pleasure to see you and, uh, and visit with you. And uh, Candice, another terrific episode of uh, Voices of the Valley. Uh, thanks to our great guests. So Mariana, thank you and safe travels. And Candice, let's do it again soon. We shall, my friend. Have a nice weekend. Yes, everyone have a good weekend and see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Western Growers Association, supporting producers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com.